Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Caroline Fulford. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm glad I can be the uh, woman correspondent to this show, as I am with more than a few now, I suppose. <laughs> well, as Caroline points out, this is our woman-centric episode of The Handmaid's Tale. It's very much in, in the public eye right now because of the Hulu series, but this is one of the books that I think uh, the people, the Facebook group, have been most excited to, to hear. And when you said you wanted to do it, I was happy to revisit it. Awesome. So just introduce people, put in a plug for your stuff here right now. Oh, sure. Um, I host the Loose Cannon podcast. That's C-A-N-O-N. Um, it's kind of dormant right now, but we have a back catalog of um, me and a guest talking about a film they love for a personal reason or an anecdote they have associated with it. So check it out. That's uh, loosecannonpod.com. The Handmaid's Tale. You want to talk a little bit about your your interest in this book? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a major piece of feminist fiction, but what's your particular interest? Well, um, first of all, I was surprised that apparently enough people had been assigned this book in high school to make it associated with the premise of this podcast. Am I wrong in that? I, I wasn't assigned in high school, but it didn't exist when, uh, quite yet when I was in high school. Okay. I just, I read it in high school originally, and I reread it for this show. And um, I think if it had been assigned at my single-sex Catholic school, like, the parallels would be a little too obvious between, like, the way we were being educated, so it would not have been assigned at school for me. Now, this book was published in 1985. I was a, I was a, a junior going into a senior in 1985, and the next year when I went to college, I was assigned this book in the Humanities Corps, uh, which goes to show a lot about the hippy-dippy school I went to. Uh, <laughs> because this was a book that was not without controversy when it was published, although it was something of a of an international bestseller at the time. Reading it again now really brought me back to those days of the mid-80s and late 80s because it really feels like a story for that time to me. I, I, right, the, yeah. The TV series, I think, has tried to move it more into a fable for our times uh but but this really is situated i think in the world of ronald reagan and the moral majority on the one hand and of the last vestiges of second wave feminism and and the burgeoning third wave coming along on the other hand right yeah it definitely um i was both surprised by how dated it felt uh in its subject matter but also how like readable and contemporary it was as a prose piece. It really reminded me of The Hunger Games, actually, because I had just recently, more recently read that than I did um, this book. So Probably everyone out there knows uh, the book, at least to know its premise. But do you want to give a, a brief synopsis of what this book's about? Sure. Uh, it takes place in an unspecified, well, specified by the end, but uh, it takes place in the future, um, starting from around when the time the book was written, like the mid-80s. 
and it posits a future in which uh, the population has risen below replacement rate. And so there's this international crisis of infertility and various sort of climate change uh, related disasters. And that makes humanity retreat into these little like pods of reformed culture. And this takes place in one of them um, where you get a single person uh, narrating her story of how she is a sort of fertility midwife, like a biblically ordained fertility midwife to this married couple who are the commander and his wife and this sort of, uh, you know, dystopian government we exist in here and how it's her job. She's totally been, her identity has totally been erased by this like Christian takeover of presumably the United States Um, and how, you know, all these sort of laws came into place as part of like a terrorist conspiracy essentially. But um, it's her story of how she sort of exists, this continuous trauma of being um, forced into sexual ser- uh, slavery, essentially, um, in this religious cult culture that has formed in the wake of, like, the collapse of the United States. So it's a first-person narration from her perspective. The protagonist of the book is Offred, which by now everyone knows, because it's not that big a deal, that that is derived from the fact that the commander who owns her in the society is named Fred, and so it's the contraction of, of Fred, one of the things that struck me when I was reading it through this time was there's a lot of things that people know about this book by this by this point, you know, and it, it, that, for example, the Hulu TV series doesn't begin to pretend that it's not about the sexual slavery of women. Uh, but when I was reading the book, it occurs to me that we don't get to sort of the big reveal of what her status is and what her role in the society is until like 15 chapters in. Yeah, I think that's absolutely deliberate. And I actually really respected that decision as I read it because I feel like front-loading it or rather like making it the sort of initial gasp moment of the novel, I think gives like a dramatic tension to rape that I think is, I I would see, I definitely saw Margaret, I would seeing it as like sort of glamorizing it or like placing too much of the dramatic tension on the rape itself and not the continuous sort of traumatic experience of this time. So I definitely think that was uh, a decision I respected rereading it. Um, although, yeah, you're right. I, I forgot that that was how it was structured in the length of the novel. Yeah, there's a long, slow reveal of all the things having to do with this with this story. As you mentioned, we aren't even sure when it happens. And it's kind of mentioned in the strange epilogue that someone says about it being a late 20th century theocracy uh, so right. so that that would place it i guess sometime in the 1990s almost i mean i yeah so but but all these things are not there's there's all these little glimpses you're given along the way and if you know what you're looking for you realize for example that a lot of the action takes place in cambridge around uh, harvard university and with the end of the book, some, somehow the narrative uh, that has been preserved has wound up in Maine somehow. And, and so you've got this kind of a geography. A, a lot of uh, dystopias have to do this. They have to establish that things have changed just fundamentally yeah. and irrevocably. But they also have to they also have to have characters that have memories of life before. I felt that this book did a, a better job than, say, uh, 1984 of convincing me that this was someone who had actually lived through this 
and now some time, say 10 years later, was living in this kind of a post-traumatic stress disorder of, of trying to figure out what her life was now. Right. I mean, it's interesting you say uh, you think of it in terms of believability, because to me, those two writing styles are so distinct and those two approaches to like characterization and voice are so different by t- like the, you know, the 50s versus the uh, or was it 1984, the 50s or the 40s? Uh, it was it was it was 48. I guess I just kind of trust that like George Orwell being a person writing when he being a British person writing when he did has a different approach to um, like a psychological way into the main character. But uh, yeah, I mean, Margaret Atwood writing in the 80s, like we definitely are looking for like a psychological portrait of this person. And I think that comes across pretty well. Um, I think that there's a brief mention made of like people being unsure or less conscious of their memories because of something like a, some sort of torture treatment. But yeah, I'm not, that's the only, if so, that's the only way in which they make it like physically plausible but it's more important that like the experience of trauma has this amnesiac like benumbing effect Alfred feels very real and present to me throughout this book and 19 in 1984 Winston Smith seems more like a stand-in as the the reader's eyes to see what this world is like and I never mm-hmm. really care that much about him. I, 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 in fact, I had to just now look up his name again because I've <laughs> forgotten what his name was. And yeah. I, I just, uh, that's not necessarily bad. It's just that the, 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 the whole project of writing 1984 was about world building. Handmaid's Tale is also about world building, but it's also, I think it's primarily about this obsessive uh, character study of what it's like to live in constant trauma and how you you seek an intellectual escape from that yeah i mean it's interesting you say that she's more compelling because she is pretty passive throughout most of the novel i mean passive in the sense that the things that the the front story of what she's actually describing has her sort of reacting to a lot of things and that's how we get the world building but it's only really towards the end that she starts having like a journey in the plot right no, I, I agree, and and she says as much uh, in the in the towards the end. She talks about how she wishes this were a different story in which she could say something happy had happened, or that she had done something heroic, or that she hadn't been such a passive participant in the in the actions. Right. But it is a good description of a world in which you are so paranoid about everything that you just don't feel like you can take an action. I think that part of that's an interesting allegory about traditional ways that women have to engage with the world and not knowing who is actually an ally and who's going to turn on them. I think that especially with Nick at the end, that's a great um, metaphor for whether or not you can trust someone who is a member of the uh, oppressive class of of Mm -hmm. men. She is kind of a passive character, but she is also she's been through a lot. Yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely giving her a break, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, going back to 1984, like th- these are all t- these are both um two very different eras of science fiction as well. Like 1984 is very concerned with ideas and with uh thinking out the the logical conclusions of these political systems, and The Handmaid's Tale is do- doing the same thing in a way, but 
at uh, what a lot of sort of older science fiction people would call a social angle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm always going to be the person who's like cheering for like a genre approach to these sort of things because I feel like the literary stamp gets kind of placed on them and they're they're suddenly, you know, more acceptable. But Well, you know that Atwood herself resisted the term science yeah. fiction on this novel. Yeah, I mean... I, yeah, I get it. I get I get how in the 80s it might not have felt very much like science fiction, but I suppose we'll return to that. Well, you know, what the one thing that did strike me as kind of funnily science fiction this time was when they described using things like uh, debit cards, which didn't really quite oh, exist yeah. at that point. They were describing them as something marvelous and and surprising, and also they were the instrument of the women's downfall because uh, of the way that the automation and co computerization of finances allowed for centralized control of these things. Um, you know, in 80, I can confirm that in 85, I remember we had ATMs, but we did not yet have, uh, or at least not in, in my neck of the woods, we did not yet have debit cards that were attached to your, your, your accounts, you know, and, and very few people had credit cards at that point credit was still something that people w wasn't easily extended so it, it did kind of describe a, a a funny world today of course that seems like why are they talking about this and this because they, they keep talking about it as though it's some sort of a technological marvel yeah i mean I, I'll, I'll forgive her being vague on the details because she so adequately uh, has the character in her own little world from the beginning and she's very uninterested in details as well as being sort of passive but um but yeah I mean I guess I didn't even really notice that I thought she was just constantly calling like computers and banks weird things because that was the way this world worked but this is a book that is told entirely through Alfred's internal monologue and it's a monologue that switches between the present and between snatches of memory, memory both before the revolution, memory of the early days of the revolution. And it's that there are times where dialogue is presented without quotes. So it, it resembles in many ways a, one of those early 20th century stream of consciousness novels, you know, like um, Gertrude Stein or something like that. And it's it, it I think it's lovely writing. It it requires, I think, careful attention. I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I was just surprised at how like not again, not to like place a hierarchy on the way that these things are written. But to me, it was very much like a bestseller kind of prose style. Um, I felt like the de the details were there, but they were all very easy to digest and like were written this very like engagingly page turning fashion um it didn't i was worried that it would be just such a bummer every single time i had to pick it up but uh it ended up being like something i would end up reading compulsively and i suppose that definitely contributed to its success in the 80s the one thing that struck me as more literary about it was offred's uh constant wordplay the way right. one of the ways that she distances herself from what's happening to her is she looks at things abstractly and she talks about things by naming them and then she notes how that name relates to another use of the word and this goes on through the the, the whole book these kind of this kind of wordplay and the idea of 
of words is keeps coming up again and again because uh, women are forbidden to read and write but that's what she hungers for and so she is kind of writing this all in her head and she plays Scrabble with the the commander as they the two of them develop this strange relationship um, and she finds the writing in her closet that she becomes obsessed with and the idea of communication becomes very important to her because she's so completely isolated from everyone else in the world she can't trust anyone else in the world she composes the narrative of the story as a fanciful hypothetical letter to someone else right i mean i think that the the one of the things that really worked on the level of creating this very eerie very um sort of thick atmosphere was the wordplay was the constant um assertion that uh, the true har- one of the many true horrors of a system like this is just words kind of losing their meaning or words being twisted to uh, specific ends in the mouths of those who use them. Um, and how, you know, plus, plus these highly ritualized uh, dystopian worlds seem to rely on a lot of uh, capitalized nouns as well, as you find a lot of a lot of this kind of genre literature. But but yeah, I mean, that's how you kind of you kind of sense the boundaries of um, Offred's inner world that way. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what you what you just brought up there the the vocabulary of this new world. It's it's all drawn from the Old Testament largely. I mean, this is nominally a Christian country, but it's a it's a Christian fundamentalist country that's very modeled after the kind of return to family values idealism of uh, the moral majority in the mid the mid 80s and so you have this world of commanders you have their wives you have the handmaids whose job is to bear children you have the marthas who jo- whose job it is to take to um, keep house you have the aunts who are a class of women for keeping other women down. Um, and then you have, I thought it was funny because at one point she talks about econo wives, yeah. which are what the poor people who can't afford to uh, to maintain a household of five or six women have one woman who does all the, the, the roles uh, of all these other people. It, it, it struck me as kind of, wait, is this really what they call this? Or is this like some slang term? It seems... <laughs> out of of character yeah i mean well like i guess they they assume they assert at one point that um each man has issued a woman and that's as a way of controlling reproduction and controlling this sort of social ritual of of marriage so it is kind of this like uh commodity literally like an econolodge like the bargain basement version of the thing that all men deserve uh, again, with the presumption that it is not they who have the reproductive problem, but uh, only women. There's a lot of things that are hinted at in this worldview that I, I keep wondering about, because obviously if the rich class of men are monopolizing five or six women apiece, then there there must not be, uh, there must be a lot of men out there who are unpaired with women. Um, and you kind of wonder about what the, what that what the implications are there. 
Um, I mean, I mean, presumably they're fighting in these <laughs> in these various border wars they're having. That's right. They, they, that, that's the the other thing that happens in this world is we never quite know how far the the boundaries of this state Gilead have gone. It's it's ironic in a way to set this in the Northeast, which would be probably the one part of the United States that would resist this kind of uh, of, of regime the most. Well, it's interesting. I mean, well, we can get into it, but like, I honestly don't think this would happen at all. Like, <laughs> Americans just really don't like being told what to do. Right. You know, like, I, I, say what you will about like regionalisms, but I think we all have that in common. Thinking back to the mid 80s, the constant drumbeat on the side of the right was of returning to old-fashioned values there was a lot of there was a lot of reaction to the civil rights movement there was a lot of reaction to the women's rights movement there was a lot of reaction to the counterculture and mm -hmm. I, I think that by the by the 80s there was just a, a real entrenchment of people thinking we that something had been lost in this country and that something got addressed by people like Jerry Faldwell as being a, a turn away from traditional morality. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it would happen on a large scale. That's, I, I guess the one thing I would, I would say about this is it could happen on a small scale. It could happen, you know, it could be like if, if all of Gilead is sort of like a large branch Davidian sect, yeah, maybe that could happen. Like a like a bunker in Texas yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's true. I mean, I maybe it's because I, I did not, I was not around in the '80s, and uh, I'm enough of a student of history to know that like the most disgusting political rhetoric we've ever had have has all been part of like theater to a certain extent, and like it's in the democratic process to have these kinds of very like bullying conversations in the first place and whether or not they result in like extremely devastating legislation i don't think it leaves room for like an actual totalitarian takeover by any one ideology well offered seems very real to me she's about it i mean moira is given some good lines but she's kind of like the 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 fiery sassy friend uh and she kind of plays a role a lot of the other characters in this book don't really come together as characters to me i don't think that that's necessarily what um i don't think that's necessarily what atwood is on about but it is telling to me that when they did the adaptation for for tv one of the first things they did was they completely enlarged the roles of Alfred and janine and nick and even luke uh to become these ongoing characters and uh and much more each one is given their own motivation and their own backstory serena joy is given a backstory in the in the, the tv show i think that as a i think that it's a it's a good move to make from the standpoint of a continuing series i don't i think that what it, it does though in some ways is lessen the thematic point of the novel yeah yeah, I again, I've only seen the first episode, but I could already tell that just to sustain the episodic format, they would have had to make 
the plot into like a series of challenges for Offred as opposed to one long sustained like traumatic experience. And I, I know that, that that has to be how you write a TV show, but Right. And and, and Offred herself is much more if, if you if you find her inactive in this book, she's given much more agency in the T V series and she's she's actively seeking to change her position but i mean the other thing that's interesting to me about that is is in the the tv series they um they they give her 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 before revolutionary name name which is june mm. and okay yeah that's right and well in the book it's not clearly ever stated although with the very first chapter the handmaids newly captured being indoctrinated in the red center are whispering to each other at night and they list each other's names to each other and june is the last name mentioned Mm -hmm. it's not said by the narrator this is my name and in the epilogue it's actually said we never know her name so it's a right it's a funny thing there there was of course the 1990 film of the handmaid's tale and in that one they 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 named her kate (laughs) okay Yeah, that was the Natasha Richardson one, right? Right, right. She actually that one looked very, very menstrual. Yeah, she actually gets gets away at the end of that. This book ends on a Lady or the Tiger kind of ending, where we're off at the end of the novels. We we don't know whether she's going to be saved by the Mayday group or going to be taken away and and you know either deported or killed. Right. Uh, but the the movie ends with her escaping. It, it has to have the kind of shape, I guess, that would make for like a thriller kind of uh, setup. I was that maybe that's for the same. I guess I haven't been that motivated to see the show just because of the way the marketing especially seemed to go out of its way to say that it wasn't a feminist story. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was like, oh, OK, they're trying to make it like an action sci-fi thriller kind of prestige tv show as opposed to like i don't know i don't know if the kind of thing that i would have wanted would have worked at all in anything but like a very solemn mini series but you know i'm not sure elizabeth moss herself said that the series was not feminist but i i i think she's wrong i think it it is it it does carry along a lot of the themes of the book, although it might be a good point as any to discuss feminism in this uh, in this novel because it's a it's it's a complicated novel as far as its attitude towards feminism. Well, it's definitely a straight white woman feminism. <laughs> um, I don't say that as like a heavy-handed criticism. I just mean that like. I, if this were anyone but a presumably straight white woman, it would be, as we see with Moira, I mean, Moira's, Moira's a lesbian, like, she, I feel like that character is posed to be, like, the character who has more spirit because she is less sort of implicated in, like, this sort of heteropatriarchy from the beginning. Um, and she, the, you know, Alfred says more than once that, like, Moira knew it was coming and, like, she feels kind of vindicated by it. Um so and they also say in the book that there are no people of color around because they've all been shipped off till i guess detroit they say i think they say detroit at one point but yeah detroit and montana right i mean they there's basically like it is 
I understand like the decision making that went behind it is like this is not a version of a world where I would like seek representation if I were not a a, a, a white lady, but um, they put representation into the show and sort of un- did not write in those bits that she had uh, put in the eighties. But um, but yeah, it's we're gonna we're gonna talk about this more. But the version of second wave feminism that uh, Margaret Atwood presents here via Alfred's mother, especially who is the sort of archetypical, uh, you know, quote, bra-burning 1960s, 1970s radical feminist, um, and how Offred seems to believe that the vision of the world that her mother fought for kind of brought this about in a way, like how the ways in which the gender essentialism of second-wave feminism dovetail with this ultra-conservative return-to-the-home philosophy. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, no, definitely. When I read this book in my class in 1986, Earlham College was a very, and it remains, a very liberal school and with a very active women's center and a a strong feminist mindset among the students. And there was a lot of of talk during that time in feminism was focused on uh, sexual politics, and by which I mean specifically the issues involved with sexual relationships between men and women, and whether or not it was even possible to have anything like a good, fulfilling sexual relationship with a a class of people who were actively oppressing you, and this was the heyday of uh, Andrea Dworkin. It was the heyday of Catherine McKinnon, and there was a lot of discussion at that time that was centered on sex work and on pornography, and and that was seen as very much central to the feminist project at that time. Now, of course, along in the 90s came this wave of sex-positive feminism, which was saying, no, it's it's fine. It, you, you can't squelch sexual expression because women need to be able to have sexual expression as well. Um, that's one of the things that has led to so much strife between the second and third waves of feminism. I mean, speaking as a, mostly as an observer here, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. Don't 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 come after me for for this. I no wish. no no. That's that's basically right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's literally scenes in The Handmaid's Tale where you get flashbacks to the the training of the of the handmaids in the films that they're shown about violence against women and everything basically everything that went wrong in the world to result in the world that they have now and a lot of it is like very violent pornography which they say like oh is this even real like did they make this to make us believe that the world we came from was worse than the one we're entering um so I definitely think that Margaret Atwood is probably more on the side of this this you know nascent third wave uh in these discussions I don't know if she like her her, her blind spots are definitely pretty obvious, like, again, with, like, the, you know, with lines of analysis along uh, queer and racial um, analyses. But, yeah, I mean, I did not love the Jezebel's sequence for that reason. I feel like that that whole sequence did come from a place of, like, thinking that sex work is by nature horrifying. Um Basically, that this is a, a portion the, towards the end of the book where uh, Offred is invited by the commander to essentially a brothel slash like gentleman's club, 
where these patriarchal figures have, as they always have, found loopholes in their own sort of strictures so that they can enjoy themselves and sort of have all the joy in life to themselves, again, at the at the expense of women. But Alfred's narration here, again, is, is a product of the character, but um, she definitely views the women as, like, on... She, it's like an explicit contrast with the the fate of the handmaids and i think we're supposed to draw like a they're the same there is no escape kind of conclusion because she sees the women in jezebels as like resigned even if they're not actively afraid they know that their time will be up after after a couple of months or years and then they'll go to the colonies as opposed to you know, the eventual fate of these handmaids who are probably not going to get pregnant by the commanders and so, you know, die in trying. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I also think that Atwood's, Atwood's um, discussion of desire and of, of love is a bit nuanced when it comes to just she wants to claim a central space for the individual that the individual needs to have that space because ultimately she says that's that's the defining characteristic of of, of humans is their ability to love or their, or their ability to desire and she talks about Alfred has all these thoughts about previous times when she was careless about sex and she was able to kind of luxuriate in it and and it didn't it didn't have meaning other than its its momentary pleasure and that's pointed out as something crucial that's missing from this world atwood finds a place for sexuality that that this is where i think she is critical of the second wave feminists but i also think she's probably oversimplifying their point of view on these things i don't think that it ever was there there were radical separatists and there was definitely a um a, a a whole movement in the in in the feminist at, at my college of of women saying no you absolutely cannot uh live a a, a a heterosexual life and call yourself a feminist um that didn't last long though <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's just because i think people move on from these things um as they figure out sort of what works and what doesn't work, especially for the new gener- the next generation of people who don't, are, I, I think that the relationship between Alfred and her mother is made pretty clear that like Alfred has benefited in a lot of ways from her mother's activism and her mother's work, even if that work has taken up her mother so entirely that she kind of is no longer a mother to her. Um, so I do feel as if the novel is coming from the perspective that like things were going to change regardless um between either if whether it's between second wave and third wave feminism or if it's between you know a modern world and a backwards world um and that perhaps it is only through these sort of first person historical narratives that we are able to get to the future of the epilogue in which some you know sanity has has reigned again and we get this sort of uh, this collegiate discussion of the the era of Gilead in the past, and maybe it is that sort of reclaiming of the of the individual mind, the individual sort of examination of one's own feelings and one's own inner monologue that 
we sort of are able to get out of the sort of desperate groupthink that makes these societies possible. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the epilogue because it's a very divisive uh, section of the book. There's people who absolutely hate this and there are people who, who really like it. At the end of the novel, we're presented with this uh, Lady of the Tiger ending where Alfred is either going to salvation or she's going towards imprisonment and improbable death. And there's where the first person narrative ends. And then it jumps into this epilogue, which is analogous to a 19th century, oh, I found this you know, yeah. bundle of letters in my attic and here's the yeah. novel that you're reading now that tries to explain how on earth this novel could have gotten into anyone's ha hands. Now, mm -hmm. all along, it's been being told in first person in her head while things are happening. So obviously, it can't actually be being written as it's happening. So we have this highly intellectualized discussion of how this was found on a series of cassette tapes and then a kind of that kind of science fiction -y thing of and if you don't know cassette tapes were this crazy yeah. thing that people had and, they, <laughs> and and then but one of the things that's funny about this is it it stands both as an explanation of, of how this book came to be but also as a parody in some ways of oh absolutely of, uh, yeah of, of academics and and while, yes, the world has returned to something of normalcy, all of, uh, what's his name, Professor, what is his name? He's got a crazy oh, name. Oh, no. Um, was he the professor of Caucasian studies, or is that someone else? His name is Pro Professor Piaciotto, and, and he keeps making these really stupid sexist jokes. Like, he yeah. keeps talking about the system of people transporting women to Canada was called the underground female road or the frail road and supposedly these are laugh lines to the audience um yeah <laughs> and yeah. so it, it it's sort of like yes the world has reestablished into something more like equality but there's still gender essentialism still reigns and there still is this kind of a patronizing way in which this guy is going to come along and tell us what this all means he's also going to tell us not to judge the gilead nation harshly because we can't judge other cultures on our merits yeah i mean his argument is essentially that like well we maybe we could all rich like we don't know what would happen if we are all made to suddenly return to the level of like resources and stuff we had then like basically an explicit implication that like they would if <laughs> if another cataclysm were to happen um, and they, they don't even they don't, of course, discuss how they, you know, cleaned up all the world enough to live in it. But yeah, I mean, I I guess I could I was I, I can't say I was annoyed by it in the moment because like that epilogue always makes my stomach just drop. But it's <laughs> it's like it feels kind of like Atwood showing us her notes um, like the guys literally like the handmaid's tale like we edited together to sound kind of like chaucer and like uh it's, it just seems like atwood kind of having fun in this very dark way i assume that's at that point she was already like deep into the canadian literature academia maybe but um she is now she is now um and yeah i mean maybe this could be a more of a comment on like how history like she taught that i think the book is actually has a fair amount to say about history the idea of history um and this is sort of the way that she ties that together of how 
you know, history will always elude us even as we try to understand it. And, you know, of course, we're supposed to take as a given that, like, it is only because of we sort of always stand on, like, the knife's edge of falling into something like this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, maybe it could just be about how academics talk to each other and how obnoxious that is. <laughs> uh, although her recent actions in, in a couple last couple years would probably indicate that she feels far more loyalty to other uh, literature professors than she does people you, you were talking about this to me you want to you want to mention this, this story I basically a couple years ago there was this this best-selling novelist who is also a Canadian literature professor um, was accused of sexual harassment sexual assault by a former student and he admitted to having an affair with her but he was investigated by the college and subsequently fired um, and a lot of Canadian novelists and literature figures sign this petition to like uh sort of wag their fingers at the institution for treating him like they did and margaret atwood like she basically wrote this whole thing about how like well not every man who's accused of sexual assault is guilty and sometimes people lie and this whole thing was conducted on the assumption of guilt blah 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 and like yeah yeah I mean I I'm not going to censure her for you know saying what she believes but um yeah definitely not something you could get away with now and still be like woke bay number one with twitter so the the whole the whole epilogue does smack of being a little too clever and it's honestly it's, I thought it was a little too clever the whole way through oh yeah well, well I, yeah. the the normal move would be to put something like this at the beginning of the book. The usual move when you have a novel that has to move between satire and something resembling actual human experience, and particularly the darker aspects of human experience, is that you allow the more dramatic and difficult parts to come later in the book. And this comes at the end to sort of deflate the whole the whole project and, it, and one of the ways that it deflates the whole project is it puts into question everything you've just read now of course on the one hand yes it's entirely fiction it's entirely something that margaret Atwood made up and it's there's something ridiculous about the fact that we as readers get so emotionally involved with characters who don't exist but on the other hand she is putting fiction on fiction here and 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 even in the fictional universe of the war of, of the book, perhaps all of this never happened. Yeah, I mean, Alfred says meant like a lot. Her narrative is also pretty riddled with like possible quote inaccuracies. Like she's kind of she's an unreliable narrator to a certain extent. I think we, I think we know when we're supposed to rely on her take on events and when we're not because she literally tells us because of part of the whole experience of the trauma and how this book works like emotionally and psychologically is that we are experiencing it with her and I don't think that necessarily gels with this idea of like the historical account which is why I think the novel is like definitely working with that like the challenging the idea of the historical account and the sort of tendency to see history as these like eras as opposed to one 
person just trying to keep it together to another. That also suggests to me some of the reasons why, while I admire the television show, there are ways in which I feel the they, they've kind of lost the point. Um, in the television show, as I mentioned, both Nick and Serena Joy are given backstories, and those backstories must needs be, you know, before Offered was in the picture. And so suddenly we're, we're treated to a point of view that must be their internal memories. Mm -hmm. And it feels very strange. It feels very strange even in the world of the television show because Offred is giving a voiceover for that. So we're already attuned to see this as her account of what's going on. But it feels even more strange to someone who's actually read the book where Atwood at least... Um, observed the strictures of accounting the entire story from only the things that offered could have some knowledge of right yeah i def i definitely see that but i do remember speaking of serena joy uh when that character is introduced i confess i did kind of want a little bit more of her uh because i find that whole like anita bryant character type very fascinating like the kind of woman who exploits the gains offered by feminism in order to then reassert like patriarchal domesticity um like someone who seeks public life only to tell women not to seek public life <laughs> i think that that's a very interesting uh character to have been more present in the book possibly i, I, I mean we get the sense that she's been like everyone in the household is too defeated on a certain level to even have like the passion that presumably existed for this political takeover to occur in the first place but yeah it's um i i think i would have i would have liked to have seen more of her especially since that would also play into that theme of like second wave feminism versus that ultra conservative patriarchy apropos of something completely different uh, if you heard a, a ringer go off there uh, when I said Serena Joy, that apparently registered my Hey Siri on my phone. So I apologize to anyone <laughs> listening to this podcast if it does okay. it to your phone as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think it's I think it's def it's definitely a novel that's interrogating notions of history, um, which and I was glad that I wasn't crazy by thinking of the uh, reference to Chaucer um, and everything, but. Yeah, I mean, when I what I meant when I said that I thought it was a little too clever all the way through was that, um, like, when I compared it to The Hunger Games, I, it did feel that way to me. Like, it was, to me, the inherent pleasure, such as you will, of, like, discovering this world and becoming more familiar with it chapter by chapter kind of underwrites, like, the trauma experience of the main character in a way. I don't know if that's something you observed when you were reading through it. I found those two goals sometimes at, at odds with each other, I guess I, I would say. I would say that to the extent that this book was about world building, a theoretical dystopian theocracy, it sometimes worked, it sometimes didn't work. It, it worked best in my mind when things were left a little vague and a little unexplained because it's one of these things where the more you explain it, the less sense it makes. The, if, right. if you actually try to put together a series of events that would lead to the creation of this world, you find it 
it just becomes less and less likely. Um, but if you talk about it in vague terms and everything is allowed to be sort of allegorical, it works. But that kind of fuzzy allegory, I always find conflicts with the the goals of character development and of a sort of realistic depiction of dialogue and interior life because the more you care about the character the more that kind of i don't know exists apart from or exists in opposition to this external world yeah i mean there's actually um there's a sort of burgeoning genre of uh, science fiction especially right now that's called quote cli-fi or climate-oriented science fiction. I'm never going to use the term cli-fi, but um, it's basically how, like, you know, like Jeff Vandermeer, uh, anything that's sort of in his ilk, like the idea of climate change and the Anthropocene um, world-building as central to the thesis of this new brand of literature. And there's been a lot of, like, doubt as to whether, like, the great climate change novel or climate change dystopia can even exist with the traditional like character-based approach to literature like you there need in a lot of people's minds there needs to be a huge shift towards like seeing literature as more environmental like just in its scope and not character-based so yeah I th- you're definitely not we're definitely not the first people to notice that these sort of factors seem to be working at opposite ends I would say that the things that Atwood does the best are these these when she paints a very strong visual picture I mean when she paints for example the picture of the handmaid's outfit which is so iconic and has become so iconic to become part of a you know political movement now Mm -hmm. um, I think that is very well done when she describes even something that is kind of a rote scene that you expect from a dystopian novel of the of public executions or the people you know the 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 bodies hanging on on the the wall uh that that all actually to me that that's those are arresting sequences and i think there are passages where offred stops and considers something at length at a tangent that i i found to be beautiful little essays in and of themselves love said the commander that's better that's something i know about we can talk about that falling in love i said falling into it we all did then one way or another how could he have made such light of it sneered even as if it was trivial for us, a frill, a whim. It was, on the contrary, heavy going. It was the central thing. It was the way you understood yourself. If it never happened to you, not ever, you would be like a mutant, a creature from outer space. Everyone knew that. Falling in love, we said. I fell for him. We were falling women. We believed in it, this downward motion, so lovely like flying, and yet at the same time so dire, so extreme, so unlikely. God is love, they once said, but we reversed that. And love, like heaven, was always just around the corner. The more difficult it was to love the particular man beside us, the more we believed in love, abstract and total. 
We were waiting, always, for the incarnation, that word made flesh. And sometimes it happened, for a time. That kind of love comes and goes, and is hard to remember afterwards, like pain. You would look at the man one day and you would think, I loved you. And the tense would be passed, and you would be filled with a sense of wonder because it was such an amazing and precarious and dumb thing to have done, and you would know, too, why your friends had been evasive about it at the time. Then you kind of got back into the swing of things, and you kind of felt like, oh, well, you know, where's this going from here? I mean, it is... I remember someone once... Oh, who was it? Someone... Some some novelist who I, I actually like a lot was very frustrated with reading with reading The Trial by Franz Kafka. And he said, the problem with that book is you, you read the first 20 pages and you know this guy isn't going to get a fair trial. And then it's like, then you look and you see you've got 400 pages left to go. <laughs> and, and you feel that, I think that that's, that, that there's a kind of a basic, there's a basic conflict here, which is on the one hand, to be true to her vision of this is what the implications are of theocratic rule or the implications are of a commodified view of sexuality and particularly a commodified view of sexuality in which men are the sole buyers um then you have to have this this dystopian world and that's it but the minute you start caring about offred and you start seeing her particular situation then you kind of want her to get out of that or at least actively seek to get herself out of that and so you, you become maybe a little bit frustrated with the way in which the novel has a sort of a sameness of tone or at least of plot. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's why most of the action, like the forward motion of the novel takes place probably the last third um, between, you know, her changing relationship with the commander and starting having to have sex with Nick, uh, which I don't know. Like, it does make the book kind of bottom heavy i guess but um it i don't know i mean I th again like maybe it's because i just tend to read this stuff so fast that i can barely register like the amount of time we spend in any given place in the novel but um yeah i i, I do think that it has survived um and probably will continue to survive as a novel as a as a material that is assigned especially is because it it works on this like you know, probably 10th grade reading level, but also has really vivid language and very strong, um, very strong central voice. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that it will probably, be, if it is continue, if it does continue to be taught, it will be taught as kind of a relic. Um, I think uh, the third wavy novels you see coming out by women of my generation, especially, tend to uh, interrogate the notion of the body um, in a far more strange and alienating way than rather interrogating like very traditional notions of gender or the body. Um, basically, gender, we, we like to pretend that gender is over in our current literature to a certain extent, or we're actively involved in kind of like queering it or making it strange or unrecognizable. So we're far less invested in that. Yeah, that that would be very alien to the way that Atwood uh, was writing, at, at least in this novel. I don't know if Atwood has changed her opinions at all, but this definitely is, as you mentioned, a, a straight white woman's story. Although I, one thing I would say about that is 
this is this is one thing where I think the TV show does a better job than the novel, which is in the TV show, the relationship between Alfred and Nick is at once a lot more sexy and also a lot more complicated. They It happens much sooner in the TV series than it happens in the novel. And it is made to be something that is... Um, that, that both parties feel very ambivalent about. And part of the complications of it are in the TV show, they make the odd choice of having Luke survive and th- that Alfred gains knowledge that Luke has survived. And so her relationship with Nick, her continued relationship with Nick, then is colored by the fact that she knows that her husband is alive and looking for her. And mm, so, okay. so I think all that stuff actually gets complicated well. But again that's a drive towards a more character-based heavy plot uh, approach, an episodic approach. And it kind of then loses the, 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 the focus of the novel. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always get the same feeling whenever I see like a, a film or a TV show as being adapted of literature that is very much about uh, inner feelings, especially of women or of relationships between women that don't necessarily result in a lot of, incident um like i'm very curious not to totally derail but i'm very curious as to what the adaptation of the neapolitan novels by lana ferrante will be like because those books are so self-aware and so interior that i doubt they would translate like super well to a point a to point b kind of plot but and honestly like this tv show could play into the whole like commodification of feminism Mm -hmm. to a certain extent but even if that's true i think it probably will like open someone's eyes or something i don't know like i feel very i'm I'm recording this in brooklyn new york right now and i feel very unqualified to judge as to how any bit of mass media would be received by the country at large so in that way we're probably still like it's the 80s Thanks to co-host Caroline Fulford. You can hear more of Caroline on the Loose Cannon podcast. The reading was by Erica Ensign. You can hear her on the podcast Lazy Doctor Who on the Incomparable Network. You can send email to the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com. You can join us on the Facebook page. Or you can join the discussion on the Incomparable Membership Slack. We'll see you next time. And remember, everything will be on the final.